Amen. Well, I am uh, talking to you guys tonight about no longer orphans, but sons of God. And and we're not going to major on the orphans. We're going to be majoring on sons of God there. And I want to kick us off here by uh, asking the question, why does your identity even matter? Right? Why, why, does it, why does it matter that you have a sense of identity? And at least one, I think, I think many reasons, right? There's uh, probably lots of reasons why your identity matters. But at least one of them that's really important is that your identity is important is be, because it gives you or it helps you to understand what duties you have towards other people and what duties they have towards you. That's part of the reason why your, duty or your, uh, uh, your identity is so important. So um, when I say duty, let me be careful here. I know that's like a bad word to modern culture. We don't like this idea of duty, okay? Um, but uh, when I say duty, I don't mean like a begrudging sense of duty, okay? I don't mean a sense of uh, dragging your feet. I, I, can't, I don't want to do this, but I have to because it's my duty, so I'm going to do it. I, I mean uh, a natural consequence of who you are when I say duty. I, I think duty, when done right, is done with fullness of joy, right? It's done with... I, I, are you laughing because I keep saying duty? Yeah, that's why you're laughing, isn't it? That's totally why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone else, you're more mature than these people right here. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Maybe I'll swap that word with obligation. Okay, so when I say obligation, right, I don't mean like trudging your feet, sad, upset about what you have to do. I think, I think sometimes, right, as a Christian, we have to do things we don't want to do, right? Sometimes we do have to fall back. But if that's the norm in the Christian life for you, that's a problem, right? Like if you're always praying because it's your obligation, that's a problem. If you're always waking up to read your Bible just because it's your obligation, if you're always showing up to winter retreat and CF and, and church on Sunday because you have to, you should have alarm bells going off saying something's not right in my heart and in my mind, right? But that doesn't mean it's not your obligation still as a Christian, right? We should just do those obligations with great joy. So when I say obligation, I mean the things that naturally flow from your identity, right? So for example, let's say you get a new teacher, you're, you're, grad, or you're moving up from grade 9 to grade 10, right? And you're, you, know, you, know, you got a new teacher, you can expect some things from them because of their identity as your teacher, right? They have some obligations towards you to teach you, to care about you, right? To work hard, to prepare lessons. Those are all obligations, and the best teachers do it with great joy, but that doesn't change that it's their obligation, right? Or when you become a mom or a dad, as, as uh, like 98% of you in this, in this room will probably experience, uh, as soon as you have that child, you have some great obligations laid upon you as their parent. To care for them, to feed them, uh, to even love them is your obligation, I would say. And, and you don't do that dragging your feet or something's wrong. You do that with great joy. So knowing our identity is something that gives us a sense of understanding what our obligations are and what the world is teaching us, what, what their idea, what their feeling of obligation is, is um, or maybe a better way to say is what their idea of real freedom is, is freedom is freedom from obligation. Does that make sense? If you have no obligations, then you're really free. If you can just, you know, break free from all these pressures that people are putting on you and just go live your life wherever you want to be, probably in the mountains somewhere, right, where nobody can tell you what to do, then you'll be really free. That's their definition of freedom. And let me just tell you, don't believe that lie because that lie will lead you to incredible anxiety, incredible anxiety. 
It'll lead you to incredible anxiety because um, we actually, as human beings, we flourish from knowing what we're supposed to do. You know what I mean? Like, as a campus director, right, uh, what's at the root of lots and lots of questions that people ask me is, what, what am I supposed to be doing? What are my obligations in life? Right? Should I take this job or not? Should I move here or not? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I show up to this conference or that? Should I believe this or that? Right? Who am I? How am I living? Am I on the right track? Am I doing the right thing? And if you don't have that sense of obligation, if you, and coming from a solid sense of identity, you're going to be like a person that's driving late at night in the middle of a storm to a place you don't know how to get to without a GPS. Right? Some of us, that maybe hits close to home, right? That was like three days ago, right? <laughs> it's terrifying. It's anxiety-inducing, right? And we had a little screen right there telling us exactly where things turn. That thing shuts off when you lose your sense of identity. That shuts off when you lose your identity because you no longer know your obligations. You no longer know what you were made for. You no longer know if you're going the right way or not. And so an attack on your identity is actually an attack on your obligations. It's actually an attack on how you live your life and what you should do and how you should live. It affects everything. Does that make sense? It's super important. Let me, just because it's so important, let me give you an example here. There's a, there's a philosopher named, named Derek Parfit. I don't know if that's how you say it. I'm pretty sure it's not parfait, but Derek Parfit, I think, is his name. He probably got made fun of elementary school all the time for that. Parfait. And he says, he makes this claim. He says that identity is something that actually changes over time. Okay, so we're going to get a little philosophical here, but every worldview has to answer the question, what makes you you? What, what makes mankind mankind? Are we evolved animals, right? Are we really smart uh, you know, animals? Is that what we are? Who, what is mankind? What is our sense of identity, right? And how do we develop senses of identity? And does it ever change? And what this guy says, and he's actually in the mainstream, this is not a, you know, an obscure thought, this is what most secular philosophers uh, believe, is that your identity actually changes with your experiences, right? So you came to this winter retreat, and you heard some teachings, and Derek Parfit would say, you're leaving here a new person, Right? You've heard some things. You've learned some things. You maybe even have some different from beliefs from what you believed when you came in here. And he says, he argues, if you have enough things like that, you read enough books that shape you, you have enough experiences that shape you, you develop new relationships that shape you, your identity can actually change so much that you become a new person. And so here's the line he draws from that. Let's say you marry somebody and you make some vows to them. I will love you, sickness and health. I'll be with you, whatever, whenever, until death does us part. And then five years pass, and you have new friends, new relationships, new things you believe, new books you've read, and you look at the person you've married, right? And they're expecting you because of your identity and your promises and your obligations to love them. And you say, actually, I'm not even the same person that made those vows anymore. Do you see the problem? Do you, do you get that? I, I'm, I'm actually a totally different person, right? I didn't make those vows. I've got new skin cells. Those things recycle like every year. I've got new blood cells. My bones are different. Like I, my body's different. My memories are different. Everything's about me is different. I'm actually not the same person. That's past John. That's past person. So I didn't make any vows to you. I'm not obligated to those vows. Bye. Do you see that? That's dangerous, right? Well, that, that's dangerous. That, that's a problem. 
This idea that you can create your identity, you can shape your identity by having different uh, experiences, right? This is at its root, the philosophical name for this is existentialism. Existentialism, this idea that your existence precedes your essence. That's what John Paul Sartre said, if any of you guys know him. And what he meant by that is you exist, you're born into the world like a blank slate, like a ball of goo. And then your essence, your identity, who you are, gets shaped after that. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? And that has massive, massive, massive complications for how you live the rest of your life. It means, what it means is you actually don't have any obligations because your identity might change tomorrow. So who you are might change tomorrow. So what you're supposed to do might live tomorrow and you have no solid foundation to live on. And you are constantly driving through a blizzard with no GPS, hoping you're going the right direction. Does that make sense? Now, I don't want to take this too far, right? God's word teaches us that we can change radically, that we can actually be born again. You know what I'm saying? So, but, but even when we're born again, right? Think about what Paul says in Galatians. He says, in this life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, right? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in this life that I now live. So he hasn't totally forsaken his sense of identity, but there's been a massive shift. He's still Paul, but he's been born again. So the problem, let's, let's just be really clear about this. When your identity is free to be created and recreated at will, you will never have a legitimate fixed identity, and therefore you will never know what your obligations are, and this will always create intense anxiety in your life. Am I going the right way? Am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right track? Who am I? What am I supposed to even do? All right, can you relate to those questions? It's because you've probably been taught from the day you were in kindergarten that you can be whoever you want to be. And, and, and I think most teachers meant like you're capable, you can do it, I believe in you, and that's fine, right? But there can also be a side, create your identity, be who you want to be. Right? It can quickly get twisted into this existentialist mindset. Now, now, we need to think now, okay, what's the biblical worldview? What does the Bible teach us about identity? I would contend that what the Bible teaches us is that our identity is not something that's fundamentally created, okay? Uh, but that your identity is something that is given to you, gloriously given to you by an unchanging God. Just think about it for a second, right? Think about Genesis 1. Did Adam decide, I'm going to be born now? Right? Was that his decision? No. God, God made him. And did Adam decide, I'm going to be a boy? <laughs> no, he didn't, he didn't decide that, right? Did Adam decide, you know, this is going to be my job. I'm going to rule over the world. I'm going to have dominion over it. No, God gave that to him. And then because God gave him that identity, he knew what he was supposed to do. And he joyfully got to work naming all of the animals, right? Some of you guys are maybe getting a head start on your Bible reading plan next year, and you just read that, right? He gets started in the dominion mandate that God gave him to, uh, to, to name the animals. He's walking in his identity, and God calls it very good. And it was all given to him, right? Or Acts 17, 26 says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In other words, did you decide, uh, I don't know, maybe you, didn't, weren't, you, didn't, you weren't born in Des Moines. How many of you guys were born in Des Moines or Iowa? How many were born in Iowa? Okay. Did you guys decide, I'm going to be born in Iowa now, right? No. Would you have decided that if you had the choice? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, we got... <laughs> 
maybe not. What's the point of this text? Your identity is given to you down to the level of where you're born, where you live. He decided, I'm going to make these boundaries. I'm going to put you here. Why? For a certain purpose that they might seek me. You have a, a sense of obligation in who you are to live and to seek God. And then now we get to John chapter 1 in verse 12. And this is what he says. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, now, now underline this if you're an underliner, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of whose will? But of God. But of God. But of God. Who gives you your identity as a child of God? God does. And what does that mean? It means it's fixed. It means it's finished. It means it's not changing tomorrow, regardless of how you feel. And that means you have a firm foundation to stand on and to live on and to think about what are my obligations as a Christian? How should I live my life? Who should I marry? Where should I work? What should I do? Where should I live? You have solid answers for that thing. The GPS is turned on. You know where you're going. It's a glorious, glorious thing. And what I'm thinking about, right, as I'm getting ready to preach this message, what, I'm, what I was thinking about, that was all introduction, okay. What I was thinking about as I'm getting ready to, is I'm thinking about these, you students, and I'm thinking you are, whether you recognize it or not, you are the next leaders in the church. You're the next leaders. The fact that you're here, that you're loving God, that you're seeking him early, that you're growing in wisdom and in grace and in knowledge and stature and favor with man and God, right? The reason, the fact that you're here means you're probably going to be leaders in the church. And what the church needs more than ever, guys, is they need some strong men and women that know who they are and that can stand firm even when a culture says all kinds of things about them. They don't toss to and fro every which way. That is not a leader that can be followed, a leader that changes their mind every week, a leader that is one second strong in the next week, the one second confident, the next not, right? We need men and women. Our children need fathers and mothers that know what they believe and stand on it and joyfully pursue the truth. Does that make sense? And that means you knowing your identity is of utmost importance. It's of utmost importance. It's not just about you feeling nice. I want you to feel nice. I want you to have tons of joy. I want you to have massive amounts of joy in your life. I want that for you. But it's not just about you feeling nice. You will be a more effective worker in the kingdom of God if you know your identity. And part of that, I I know no other identity aspect greater than this idea that you guys are children of God that can root you and ground you in God's love and give you a firm anchor to stand on. This is what Ephesians 3, 14 through 17 says. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, and then this is the phrase I want us to emphasize, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he goes on in Ephesians, for time's sake, I'm not going to read it, and he says a similar thing, that you would know God so that you would not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. What's going to cause you to be anchored and steadfast? At least part of it is knowing your identity and knowing your obligations and knowing that God loves you. Knowing the love of God will root you and will ground you. I know of no other concept greater than this. So let me pray one more time, and we'll dive into this truth of being children of God. God, I I just pray again that you'd help. I pray again, God, I pray that you would do a massive work in hearts and lives. God, I know, I know, I know for a fact there's students out here that are right now unsure of your love for them. Right now, unsure of their identity as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And I pray that you would remove all doubt this night. I pray that you'd remove all doubt, God. That you would set our feet upon a rock. That you give us a firm foundation. And that we would be joyfully at peace. Not tossed to and fro. Knowing who our Father is. Knowing where we're going. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. So let's go back to John 1.12 now, but to all who did receive him, and we're asking, the chi- we're asking the question, who are the children of God, okay? So if we're going to understand this, if we're going to apply this to our hearts, if we're going to know we're children of God, I think it's wise to think, who are the children of God? That's a good question to ask. So, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So who are those? Who are those that are children of God? It's, it's all who received him, all who believed in his name. I don't need to spend a ton of time on this point, but this is glorious simplicity of the gospel. How do you become a son or a daughter of God? You believe. You receive him, right? You, you receive him. Think, imagine if you were living at the time of Christ, right? And he's saying some crazy things. He's a carpenter's son, 30 years old. Nobody knows him. And he's saying stuff like, I'm going to judge the whole world right? Saying some gnarly stuff. He's saying, I and the Father are one, right? He's saying some shocking things, and he's saying, everybody who receives me, everybody who believes that, accepts that, believes in me and the claims I'm making, that I'm the Messiah, they will become children of God, and it's no different today. Everyone in this room that accepts Christ as the Messiah and truly believes in him is a son or a daughter of God. And so real quick, if you're not a Christian, right? I don't know, maybe you heard about a ski trip and you're like, that sounds fun. Jumped in a van with your friends and you just got brought here, right? Or maybe you've been showing up to CF over and over and over, but you just haven't made that leap, right? I I think what's happening probably is right now God might be drawing you to himself. Maybe even right now, God is saying, hey, you, uh, by believing this gospel, by believing this message, by uh, receiving me and living like it's true, you can become a child of God today, tonight. It's that simple. And I would encourage you to believe. Who are the children of God? They are everyone who believes. Number two, who are the children of God? The children of God are those whom he loves specially. Here's where we're going to get a little hairy. All right, might get a little hairy, but I think this is absolutely critical if we're going to understand the love of God. Uh, the other night, I had a girl over to my house and her husband, um, and she's you know <clears throat> trying to figure out Christianity, trying to figure some things out, and she asked me, Does, did, "Did God love Hitler?" That was the that was the that was the burning question. She she was like, "I have something I need to ask you." And I was like, "Oh, okay, what is it? you know?" And that was, I was that's the question she wanted to ask, right? Did God love Hitler? And basically what she was asking was, you know, um, does God love everyone the same way? 
Did God love Hitler the same way he loves me and the same way he loves you and the same way he loves his children? And I think biblically, the answer to that question is no. I think, I hope to show you biblically uh, that in one sense, yes, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And every breath that every unbeliever takes is a gift from God because he loves them. And John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Those things are true. God loves the world, right? And he even tells us that we should be like him and we should love our enemies because he causes the rain to fall, right? What's he saying? He's saying God loves the unjust by causing the rain to fall on them. We should act like his children by imitating him and we should love our enemies. So does God love the world? Yes. Did God love Hitler in one sense? Every breath he took was a gift. Every time he took a, a bite of nice food, it was a gift from God because God, in a sense, loved him. But does God love everyone the same? I think the answer to that is no. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved the world, us. Who's he writing to? The Ephesians, the church, the Christians. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What, now, now, what's he saying here? He's saying, let's, let's think about this verse. He's saying, why, why did he cause us to be born again like Caleb taught on? Why did he cause us from being dead to going to life? I'll stop moving. I'm sorry. Uh, why did he cause that to happen? It's because of the great love. The great love motivated him to cause some people that were dead to be born again. Now, is everybody born again? No. Is everybody brought from death to life? Certainly not. Uh, therefore, can we trace this? Everybody have that great love that is talking about in this verse. I think the correct answer, if we understand this verse rightly, is no. Or I think about 1 John 3, chapter 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. See what kind of love the Father has given to who? To us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And I just want to list a few other ways that this is translated. This is the CSB. It says, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. Or the KJV, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. Or the NIV, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. <laughs> Scripture teaches, I think plainly and clearly, that for those that are children of God, there is a unique and special love for them. Colossians 3.12 says, therefore, as the elect of God, and then what accompanies that? Some of you have the verse memorized. Holy and beloved. Is the whole world holy? Certainly not. Is the whole world elect? Certainly not. And these things are a package deal. The kind of love that he's talking about is unique to his saints, unique to his children. And this love is none other than the special and unique love that a father has for his sons and daughters. Did you get the pictures I posted? Did you get those? Oh, no, you didn't get them. You did? Can you put the first one up? Can you put that up? Yes. Do you see that girl? That, that's my youngest daughter. Her name is Haven. And um, I, I'm, I'm afraid, here, let me, let me tell you why I'm doing this. I, I'm afraid that some of us, 
because we don't understand that God loves us uniquely as sons and daughters, we, we shortchange the love of God for us. We, th this is the crux. This is why we don't understand God's love for us. We think of God's love as poured out on the whole world, and we think his love is very great because he pours it out on a lot of people. But I think what the scripture is teaching us is God's love is very great because we are his children, or we are his bride, or we are his chosen people, his holy nation. I think it's the kind of love that a father experiences uniquely for his sons and daughters. So I just want to take a second, and I want to tell you guys about how much I love my children, okay? And this might be a little weird for you, because you're like, I don't love your children the same way as you, and that'll even play into it. So just hang on with me, okay? Her name is Haven, and um, she's about 18 months old. Yeah, that's right, okay. About 18 months old, and guys, I just want to tell you that I love Haven, I love my daughter. Every time I come home, she straightens her back and stands as tall as she can and gets on her tippy toes every time. And she says, Dada, Dada. And she says it over and over, Dada, Dada. Some of you guys have maybe heard me FaceTiming my family. Has anybody heard that? And my kids are like, Dada, Dada, Dada. Like, I can't even talk to Becca because my kids are just talking to me. And it fills me with an incredible amount of joy. There's this really hilarious thing that she does where she thinks every animal is a puppy. <laughs> it's bizarre, right? So, <laughs> and she loves animals, right? So we'll be driving down the road and she'll see a bird like puppy, you know? <laughs> we went to the pet store and she saw some gerbils. She's like puppy, puppy, puppy. <laughs> Everything's a puppy and she loves them dearly. She loves them dearly. She's, an, she's a snuggler. She wants me to hold her nonstop, which most of the time I also love. You know, sometimes I'm like, kid, I just don't want to hold you. You know, but most of the time I love, I just want to, I love her. I love her, I love her, I love her. And people say, you know, like, man, kids are expensive and man, kids are inconvenient. But guys, let me just tell you, as soon as you have kids, all those things are laughable. I don't care if she costed me $15,000 a year. The joy she gives me, the love I have for her, I'd work three jobs. I don't care what it takes. I love her. Does that make sense? Can you go to the next picture? This is Aspen. Isn't she adorable? Isn't she just, she's too beautiful. I'm a little concerned. She's so gorgeous. So I'm going to have to beat the boys off of her. I know. I just know. She's our oldest. She um, is turning five soon, and I'm just so grateful for her. She is a trooper. She has been through being parented by 20-year-olds that don't know what they're doing. <laughs> She's been our, our guinea pig, so to speak, and she has just rolled with the punches, all the mistakes we've made, everything, and she just loves us dearly. She is a deep feeler. The other day we were driving in the van and she was asking me about my upbringing and, and I was kind of estranged from my dad and just raised by my mom for a little while and I was telling her about that and I look back and she's starting to cry as a five-year-old. And she was like, Dad, I'm crying because I'm so happy that I have you and mom and Margot. I'm not making this up. Like this happened in the van, right? And I'm like, yeah, me too. You know, it's so beautiful. Right? Like, like, what the heck? Who does that? Whose kid does that? I don't even, like, I think my kids are the best. I love her so much. She feels so deeply. She's incredibly affectionate. Uh, KSU students can affirm this, right? If you come over to, like, our small group, when it's time to go, you're getting a kiss. <laughs> you're getting it, wanted or not. Poor Bryce. He's one of our seniors. <laughs> Every time he's like, oh, okay, uh, all right, see you later. You know, <laughs> she, 
loves him. She loves. She just loves our church. Every Sunday morning, she is just aglow with joy that we get to go to church because she gets to eat snacks and see all her friends. She loves, loves, loves people. And I love, love, love her. I love her. And then this is my last, this is my, my second oldest daughter. I don't know why I did them out of, out of order. This is Margot. And uh, her middle name is Day. Her name's Margot Day. And uh, she's aptly named. It just works out because she is probably the most cheerful of our children. Just always cheerful. Always cheerful, always at peace. She is, she's like, she's that kid. She's content to just sit in her room and like play with her animals for like an hour. And she's upset if you disturb her. She's like, leave me alone, dad. I'm, I'm fine, you know, I'm having the time of my life. I'm okay up here, right? She loves, and one of the things that I really love about Margot is um, I started this thing. I, I think it's a good thing. I started this thing where we, as a family, we just tell each other stories. Like, we just make up stories on the spot, and, we, and now my kids are just always asking for stories, nonstop, every day, every night, right? Stories, stories, stories. And so we started having Margot tell stories, and <laughs> she tells the best stories. They're hilarious. Like, someday I'll bring them to a retreat, and I'll have her tell you guys a story. But every time in these stories, for whatever reason, I don't know why, the main character dies. <laughs> like, every story. <laughs> we were walking down the street, and then there was a bear. <laughs> And then the bear ate them. <laughs> I don't know where she gets it, but it's hilarious, like every time. And then we've been teaching her that like Jesus came back to life. And she's like, then they came back to life. And it's <laughs> every time, every time. That's the blueprint of every story of Margot Day. And it just adds incredible amounts of joy to our family, right? Like, I, I'd do anything for her. I, I, I really think I'd do anything for her. I, I love my kids with an incredible love, right? It's, you, can, you, you, can, you, you guys don't probably understand because you don't have kids yet, most of you. Some of you guys have kids. You probably don't understand. But, but man, I, I just I love my family, right? Can you go to the next one, right? I love my family. I love my kids. You know, I, I love my friends' kids. I even love strangers' kids. I do things for them, but not the way I love those kids. Right? Just like I love like gals in CF, I love you guys. Right? I love you gals, but I don't love you the same way I love my wife. Right? And that's a good thing. <laughs> right? That's right. I'd rather be with her. I have a special and unique love for my wife, and you are the bride of Christ. Right? He does not love you in the same way that he loves everybody. How messed up would it be if I loved everybody the same way as I love my wife? How messed up would it be if I loved everybody's kids the same way as I love my own kids? Right? You understand what I'm saying, right? No, I have a special and unique love for my bride, and it's for my bride. I have a special and unique love for my kids, and it's for my kids. And they didn't do a thing to earn it, right? Like, I can't, I, like when you first have this experience, look for it. But like when, my, when Aspen was first born, I'll never forget. Like something just changed inside of me. I don't know if it's because she was a girl or what. Something just changed. And I just loved that kid while she was all gooey and not that cute and nasty, you know what I mean, in the middle of the hospital. And I was just like, I, I, just, I love you. You haven't done a thing. I don't even know your personality. I don't know what you're like. I don't know who you are, but I love you. Why? Because her identity is my daughter. Why? Because my identity is her father. And here's what you guys really need to get. Please, please get this, guys. I am an evil father. I, I, I'm evil. Jesus says, right? What does he say in Matthew? I think it's chapter, 
I think it's chapter 6. He says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven? What's he doing there? He's setting up a logic system that's appropriate for us to apply outside of just giving gifts. He's saying, I am a sinful man. I'm bent. I'm distorted. My loves aren't the way they should be right? My desires aren't what they should be, right? I get frustrated. I see this sin inside of me, and yet I love my kids like this. Listen to me now. How much more your heavenly Father, who is not bent by sin? If you are a son or a daughter of God, I promise you, take this to the bank you have too small of an understanding of your father's love for you. You probably have a too small of an understanding of your own parents' love for you, much less your heavenly father's love for you. Take it to the bank. What you need to grow in, if you're a son or a daughter of God, what you need to grow in is your understanding of his love. I pray that you'll have strength along with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is his love for you in Christ Jesus. And the reason why some of us don't understand that love, the reason why we don't get it, is because you know maybe we don't understand that God loves us uniquely and specially as children. Or it might even be because for some of you, you question and you doubt if God loves you at all. Right? You question and doubt if you are a child of God at all. You wrestle with assurance of your salvation. You wrestle with knowing if he really loves you and knows you. And let me just tell you, you can take this to the bank. The scripture says, all who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you believe you are a child, he is your father. He is your father. That is your identity, right? And I know some of you guys wrestle with assurance. Let me just quickly touch on assurance. Some of you guys are thinking, I have a son that I haven't talked about. We're about to get there. Here's, here's how you can know that you're a son or a daughter of God. Here's how you can know, okay? The scriptures say, and we know this by nature, we know this is just true. It says that children act like and resemble their fathers, right? Like, uh, I hate to break to you, you're probably going to grow up to be a lot like your mom and dad. I hate to break you. Those commercials are funny because they're true. You know, <laughs> I can't stop you from becoming like your parents, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so can you put that picture on the screen, right? This is just true from nature. So this is my youngest son, Judson. Can I move? Will this work one step at a time here? Okay. I just want to point out the hair, right? Do you see? Do you, that, that's hair. I don't know if you can see it. That's hair, right? That's how I wake up in the morning, all right? That's how Judson wakes up in the morning, right? It doesn't take a genius to look at those photos and say, I think that might be your son, right? And it is my son, and I love him dearly, like I love my daughters, right? I love him dearly because he is my son. And the scriptures teach us that uh, we resemble our father, whoever that is. Whoever our father, if our father is the devil, we'll resemble the devil. If our father is God, we'll resemble God. But the scriptures don't just talk about it with how you look, with how you appear. The scriptures also talk about it in the sense of how you act, who you imitate, what you grow up to be like, right? I watched a home video of Becca, my wife, the other day when she was like four, and I was floored. I thought I was watching a video of Aspen. 
like she mannerisms, the way she talked, her voice, how she looked. I was like, is that, you know, they looked identical, right? And so here's what John 8, 39 says. This is this idea, how can you know that you're a son or a daughter of God? He says, they answered him. This is Jesus talking to the, the Pharisees. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Do you hear that? If you were Abraham's son or, you know, child, you would do what he did. Notice the order. Your identity precedes your activity. It's the opposite of start. Who you are is upstream of what you do. Who you are informs all of what you do. Keep reading verse 41. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Okay, why don't you believe? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why can't you bear to hear his word? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, the reason they don't want to know the truth is because their father doesn't care about the truth. Right? Their identity is upstream. It affects even what they believe. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, or whoever is a child of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them, this is key, the reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What's the point? What does this mean? It, it means not only do you believe to become a child of God, all right, that's what John 1 says, that's true. You believe, and everyone who believes, he gets the right to become children of God. But also, in a very real sense, you believe because you are a child of God. Because from the foundation of the world, you always were a child of God. Because that's who you were, right? Jesus went to seek and to save the lost children and to bring them back. This is the point, I think, of the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is sitting up in the tree. Jesus comes to him and says, hey, I need to eat with you. And Jesus believes him and receives him and says, I'm going to give all my possessions to the poor. And I'm going to do these things for you because I love you and I believe in you. I receive you. And what does Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Okay, why did salvation come today? Because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Do you see that? Your identity is upstream and your works flow out of that. In other words, we can look at your works and we can trace them back and we can, in a sense, know who your father is. Know if you're a children, a child of God. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And listen carefully now. This does not mean if you have any sin in your life, you're not a child. <laughs> okay, please. I've sat across from people begging them begging them to believe that because they believe they're sons and daughters of God. And they say, no, I've got this. And no, I've got that. And no, I, got, I can't be. I can't be. Please. Being a son of God does not mean you're perfect. The question you need to ask is, do you want to obey God? 
Is that your deepest desire? Do you want to repent of sin? Do you hunger and thirst from righteousness? If you do, then you are imitating your father who hates sin and loves righteousness. The question is not, are you perfect? The question is, is he your chief love? Is he who you're going after? Do you hate your sin? Are you turning from it? Are you repenting of it? Do you want him more? Do you love him more? Then you can be sure that you've been born of God because those are the characteristics of God. And you are imitating your father. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, seek righteousness, do righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. All right, let's close now. How will a right understanding of this affect the way that you live? Okay, remember what we started with, right? Remember this, identity influences obligation. You are children of God. It also gives you an idea of how other people have duties and obligations towards you. God is your father, Right? So it will inform you of your sense of obligation and it'll give you an incredible sense of direction in your life. First Peter 1.14 says, as obedient children. This is your identity, right? As obedient children, because this is true, because you believe that, therefore do, do, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, imitate him as your father, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Understanding that you're a son or a daughter of God gives you the direction in your life. It doesn't tell you exactly what job to take. It doesn't tell you exactly who to marry. It doesn't tell you what to do, but it does something way more foundational than that and more important than that, which is whatever you do, wherever you go, whatever job you take, you're doing it as a son or a daughter of the king. You're doing it to the glory of God. You're doing it for him, and that is much, much, much more important than whatever you actually externally do, assuming it's not sin. Does that make sense? That is your controlling sense of direction in all your life. Whatever you do, you do it as obedient children to God. Far, far, far from uh, the love of God making you complacent, what it does when you understand it is it makes you the kind of man or woman that just wants to please your heavenly father. Because he already loves you. How are we doing? Do you guys want to hear one, uh, another quick story? Are we tired? Are we okay? Okay, let me illustrate this point then. I love this story. I hope you've heard it before. I hope this is your fifth time hearing this. There was an, 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 you know, an early church father. I think they say that he was a, like a disciple of John. So early, okay? His name was Polycarp. And, and he grasped his identity in Christ. He got it deeply. And I want you to listen to how it led him to handle martyrdom. Listen to how it, his identity influenced the way he was able to walk through that. It says, as Polycarp was being taken into the arena, right, to be killed, everybody looking on, right, a voice came to him from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. And on hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the atheists. So for that line to make sense, you need to understand a tiny bit of church history. Because Christians did not believe in any other gods but one god, they called them atheists. You know, to them, they were basically atheists because they denied Zeus and they denied all these other gods, right? They said those aren't even real, so they called them atheists. Yeah. 
And so him saying down with the atheists is like saying down with the Christians. And Polycarp, because he's a boss, said this. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing toward them, he said, down with the atheists. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul. He doesn't want to kill him, the story goes. Reproach Christ and I will set you free. Okay, now listen. Listen how his identity influences the way he responds here. He says, 86 years have I served him. Polycarp was at least 86 years then when this happened. Polycarp declared, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Do you see what, do you see that? He has in his mind that his identity is a faithful friend of the King Jesus, that he's walked with and been upheld with and been, you know, Jesus has not forsaken him despite all his sin and failure like a child, right? And he says, because that's who I am and because that's who God is, how can I ever forsake him? I'd rather be burned. And he was. Do you see? Your identity gives you an incredible power an incredible power to live the way you ought to live. In fact, I think this is one of the main lessons of the entire New Testament, right? Romans is like 11 chapters of who you are, and then it's applied, right? Same thing with Ephesians. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And then in 5 and 6, it's then this is how you should live, right? How you live as a Christian always flows from who you are. And if you don't know that you're a son or a daughter of God, you won't live the way you ought to live. It gives you incredible power in the Christian life to be steadfast. Number two, knowing that you're a son or a daughter of God will enable you to handle all trials as discipline from a loving father. Hebrews 12 teaches us that we should receive all hardship as, as, as discipline. And we see, it says, you know, God is dis he reproves those he loves. He's disciplining us as sons. So whatever happens to you, if you're a son or, of God, a son or a daughter of God, if your best friend dies... If you get diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, whatever it is, you can be sure that God is using it for good in your life, that he's working all things together for good, and he's using it as loving discipline in you to create a weight of glory. If you're a son or a daughter of God, you don't have to be afraid that God's turning his back and no longer loving you, right? Aspen is always going to be my daughter. She cannot change that. I will always love her, whatever she does, right? The same is true with us and God. Every hardship is discipline from a loving God, and that enables us to walk through it with meaning and purpose, right? Three, what does it do? It will humble you. If you're a child of God, right? Emphasis on the child bit. You're always a kid, all right? Some of you staff members, you got some fat books this weekend, right? And that's good. I love fat books, okay? But here's the truth. You can read all the fat books in the world, and you're still just a child, <laughs> you can grow old and you're still a child and you never stop being a small child that's holding on to one finger of God's hand as he supplies your every need. It humbles you. You are a child. Number four, what does it do? It will cause you to trust God in his word. Listen, if you believe that God loves you, if you believe that he's a loving father and everything he does for you is for your good and you believe he wrote the Bible, then every word contained in this Bible is for your good, whether it feels like it or not. So let's just be blunt here. When you read those texts about gender roles, 
that says God made men to be one way and women to be another way, and he made them different, right? This is that whole, you receive your identity. You don't make your identity. And because their identities are different and their tendencies are different, their callings are different and their roles are different and the way they operate and their obligations are different, God says that, right? And if you know that he's your father and that he loves you, you can read that and say, I might not understand that, that might even feel like it's really oppressive. But I actually believe that he's a loving father. And I actually believe that that's in there for my good. And that I will be more joyful if I walk in that truth. Does that make sense? I will actually have more joy if I walk in the truths of God, right? And take any of the hard doctrines in the Bible, any of them where it's super clear, right? You know, I heard somebody say once, this, you know, this chapter is not hard because it's hard to understand. It's hard because it's easy to understand, and I don't like it. You know what I mean, right? There are many chapters like that in the Bible. And if you know that he is your loving father, and every word he says to you, he says it because he loves you, you're able to take a deep breath, and you're able to submit yourself to it and just trust your father, walking behind him, holding onto his finger, saying, I don't know where I'm going, Dad, <laughs> but you're driving this bus, and I trust it's good. I trust you love me. Does that make sense? It enables you to trust God in his word. And most importantly, most importantly, what this ought to do, if you, you, you'll know you're starting to grasp this when it produces just incredible peace and joy in your life. Like, guys, it's just been a delight preparing this message for you. Like, I'm, I'm jealous. Like, I, that I get to teach God's word means I get to meditate on these truths for hours and hours and hours. And I've just been soaking, and God's just been so kind to me. I've been through a bit of a dry season. I think in my preparation, I haven't experienced this. And then in this sermon, in this preparation, God was just so merciful. He just, he just affirmed to me that I'm his son. And I just tell you guys, it's been so good. It's just so good. It's just filled my heart with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. And I have such a peace. Like, I don't really care what happens. I'm his son. <laughs> I don't care if we do this or that. I don't care if we do, you know, I'm his son. What else matters? I have incredible joy and peace knowing that I'm a child of God. It's joy unspeakable. It's joy that's filled with glory. It's peace that passes understanding. It's a firm foundation that you can build your life on. And so uh, my prayer, my hope with this message is that you would believe, that you would not be unbelieving, but that you would believe that God does love you uniquely. He actually knows your name. Galatians 4.19 says you should rejoice that you know God. And then it's like in parentheses, Paul catches himself and he says, or rather that you are known by God. You should rejoice that you are known by him. That he knows your name, he knows your tendencies, he knows your quirks, he knows that you call random animals puppies, you know, and he loves it. He loves it. Do not be unbelieving anymore. I pray tonight that you would believe. If you are a believer, if you are a son or daughter of God, you are dearly loved. And the, the goal of your life should be to grow in your understanding of that love. And then you'll be rooted and grounded in that love. And I think you'll be ready and able to take on whatever this world throws at you. Okay? Why don't you pray with me?
Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.